welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. First of all, it's now official. As we reported on exploration a few weeks ago, the bad news is life expectancy in the United States has dropped a full year. We haven't seen a drop like that since World War II, and of course, it affects African Americans and minorities even more severely. And now, of course, the leading cause of death in the United States is no longer heart disease or cancer. It is the coronavirus. And speaking about the coronavirus, when is the madness going to end? Some people are saying perhaps late July, the bulk of the population will be vaccinated, and maybe we can get back to normal perhaps at the end of this year. Other people are saying, wait a minute, new mutations of the virus keep popping up. In the United States alone, seven count them, seven new varieties of the virus has been detected. This is in addition to the version of the virus already raging through the United Kingdom and South Africa. And now another one has popped up in Nigeria. So in other words, some people are saying that we may need a booster shot. Not one, not two, but three shots in order to protect the population against these new mutations which keep popping up around the world. And then, here's a question. What's the relationship between the coronavirus and global warming? Well, at first you may say to yourself, come on, there is none. And don't think that global warming causes everything that is bad in the world. But a new paper is coming out saying, no, look at the evidence. The evidence shows a indirect correlation between the rise of the coronavirus and global warming, and we'll talk about that. Speaking of which, why is Texas under such extreme stress with ice, with snow, with blackouts, with all sorts of problems dealing with the weather? Some people say, once again, it could be global warming, and we'll talk about that in today's show. And then, congratulations to NASA. Yes, the Mars Perseverance probe scored a bullseye on the red planet. And NASA once again has beat the Mars jinx. The Mars jinx is that on average, 60% of all probes that are sent to Mars, well, they never make it. They crash, they don't stop in time and fling off out of space. But this time, it was a bullseye. So we'll talk about what we expect to get for $2.4 billion. And then news on the medical front. A biomarker, a simple blood test for Alzheimer's. Of course, there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease, which some people think will be the disease of the century as people get older. But the question is, is there a cheap, simple way to have a blood test to see whether or not you will eventually come down with Alzheimer's disease? And the answer apparently is yes. A new chemical has been found, and it turns out that when people start to show signs of Alzheimer's disease, or even before, this biomarker can register the fact 
that you're going to get Alzheimer's. So we'll talk about this new breakthrough. A simple blood test may reveal whether or not you have Alzheimer's disease. And then, of course, that begs the other question. Why do you want to know? There's no cure for it. Do you really want to know what's eventually going to kill you? Well, some people say yes. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. First, the bad news. As we reported on exploration a few months ago, life expectancy in the United States, and it's now official, has dropped by one full year. You know, every year we used to get bored when the government would say that once again, life expectancy is marching forward. People are living longer and living happier, healthier lives. Well, not this year. Life expectancy dropped for a full year, the largest drop since World War II. And of course, it affects African-Americans and minorities even worse, 2.5-year drop in life expectancy for African-Americans. And the leading cause of death every year, it used to be heart disease, followed by cancer. It was almost monotonous hearing these reports, heart disease and then cancer. Well, now the leading cause of death in the United States is the coronavirus. However, there is a little bit of good news, and that is vaccinations are picking up. Almost, almost 2 million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are being distributed um, per day. And then the question that people are asking is, when might we go back to normal? Some people are saying perhaps late July, the bulk of the population will be vaccinated and we will be headed toward herd immunity. At that point, perhaps at 70%, Enough people will have been evacuated that there's no room for the virus to grow and infect more people. However, there's a problem, a big problem, a wild card. The wild card is more and more mutations are popping out. You see, the more virus we have, the more possibility of mistakes occurring in the replication of the virus. So the more you have, the higher the probability that it will mutate. And now that the virus has spread all over the entire population of the human race, we expect more mutations to be popping up. First of all, in the United States, it was just announced this week that seven, seven new mutations have been found just in the United States. Of course, we have one in the United Kingdom, one in South Africa, but now we have a third one brewing in Nigeria. And the question is, to fend off all these mutations, will we have to have a booster shot, perhaps a third shot? And the answer is probably yes. Take a look at the seasonal flu. We get inoculated for that once a season. Why? Because it mutates fairly rapidly. Well, originally it was thought that the coronavirus did not mutate that rapidly. But now, however, we are genetically sequencing all the different varieties of the virus around the world. And we're beginning to see that there's a family tree, that mutations are occurring, new branches of the virus are emerging. And some of these are more infectious and more lethal than the original variety. Scientists in particular are zeroing in on what are called the spike proteins. You've all seen pictures of the coronavirus. It looks like a corona and has spikes coming out. 
These are like keys, keys to the kingdom, because these spikes insert themselves into a lock, which is on the surface of your lung cells, and that's how the virus gains entry into your lungs and perhaps one day kill you. And then the question is, where are these mutations taking place? Well, they are taking place precisely at the spike protein location. That is dangerous because it means that sooner or later, with more mutations building up around the spike protein, some of these mutations are harmless, but some of them will gain access to the cell's genetic machinery much easier than before and create perhaps yet another pandemic. Already, Pfizer and Moderna, manufacturers of the two most popular vaccines in the United States, are already preparing a booster shot. Already, they're tinkering with the formula by which they created their vaccine, and they're modifying it to guard against these mutations in the spike proteins that are now being seen around the world. And again, seven mutations found just in the United States alone. Now, I should also point out that the statistics behind these mutations is still not well documented. That means that, well, some of these mutations could be harmless. We don't know. All we know is that it's a crapshoot. And if the dice is rolled the wrong way, we could be the victims. So in other words, we're seeing evolution at work. The more mutations we have, the more viruses can spread, the more viruses can spread, the more mutations you get, and you have an exponential proliferation of these mutant versions of the coronavirus. Well, we'll keep you informed, but there's a new report coming out linking global warming and the pandemic. Now, you may say to yourself, come on. I mean, the global warming is the boogeyman for everything. Is everything bad caused by global warming? Well, let's take a look at the data. Scientists are now analyzing the area in Yunnan, China, where the bat population thrives. And it turns out that by looking at records going back 100 years into the past, we see that there's been a change, an abrupt change in the forestation of that area. Forests have sprung up, jungle-like areas have sprung up in that area. And that's exactly where the bat population thrives. The bat population thrives in these forests, and there are 3,000, 3,000 different types of coronaviruses affecting this bat population. And again, most of them are harmless. However, it means that on average, each bat species in the Yunnan area carries on an average of 2.7 types of the virus. So in other words, we have a huge reservoir of coronavirus, which is exploding because of the changing temperature and the warming of that area, causing a migration of the forest area where the bats live. Now, to be sure, most are harmless, but a few of them, like MERS and SARS, they have already created panic and pandemics in the eastern part of the world. Also, the pangolin, yet another animal implicated in the chain of infections of the virus, well, it turns out that the pangolin population also has expanded because of the increase in temperature and the increase in the forested area. And now, let me say a few things about global warming 
and what's happening with the weather in the United States. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, look outside, snow everywhere, three feet of snow in New York City just two weeks ago. And what does that have to do with global warming? Isn't it the opposite? Well, no, there is a link. Again, this is a theory, and it's a theory that seems to be borne out, but this is what the theory says. Watch the evening news, and you see that what's happening with the United States is that the jet stream is wandering. Usually the jet stream comes from Alaska, goes down northern Canada, dips into, let's say, the Dakotas, and then goes back out again. That's what we have normally. This time, the jet stream is going all the way down to Texas, and creating temperatures not seen since World War II, or not seen for perhaps a hundred years. So why? Well, it turns out that if you look at the map from the top, you realize that sitting on the North Pole is the polar vortex. The polar vortex is like a cylinder. It's a hurricane sitting on the very top of the North Pole. Usually the cylinder is stable. It doesn't wander very much. However, as the Earth heats up, the polar vortex starts to wander. And as it wanders, it drags the jet stream along with it. So the next time you see a map of the United States, look at the top. And you'll see that the polar vortex is wandering. And this wandering is caused by instability. And this instability, in turn, is caused by the fact that the, the, the temperature of the polar region is warming up. Now, it turns out that the temperature inside the vortex versus the temperature outside the vortex, if there's a sharp differential, it's stable, relatively stable. But what's happening is that everything is warming up. The polar vortex itself is warming up. And so the difference in temperature between the inside and outside of the polar vortex is being reduced. And that is causing the instability of the polar vortex which in turn is causing the jet stream to wander into your backyard. And so again, this is the theory, but it's a theory that can be tested. And it's a theory that means that as we have more episodes of global warming, it means we'll have more episodes of the wandering of the polar vortex. And yes, we'll see disasters that we haven't seen since World War II and even before. Also, I'd like to extend congratulations to the engineers at NASA. The Mars Perseverance probe sailed 300 million miles from the Earth to Mars and landed on a bullseye right where they wanted. If you were following the path of that mission, you know there was 11 minutes of terror. For 11 minutes, as the probe approached Mars, we lost contact with it. It was on automatic pilot. Why? Because it takes 11 minutes for radio to go from Mars back to the planet Earth, traveling at the speed of light, or 186,282 miles per second. So that means that for 11 minutes, there was a lot of nail-biting and a lot of tension at Mission Control, realizing that everything was on autopilot. Everything had to go exactly according to plan, and bingo! they did it. We should also point out that there is something called the Mars Jinx. 60% of missions to Mars never make it. But NASA has a sterling record. Out of nine tries, eight have been successful to put 
NASA probes on the surface of the red planet. So let's talk about the mission itself. It costs $2.4 billion. It's about the size of an SUV. It weighs about 2,000 pounds, which is about the weight of a large truck. And it has a number of firsts. First of all, it's the first probe to send a helicopter to another planet. Think about that. The rover is a very slow device. It chugs along the sand, doesn't go very fast. It's very, very slow, just a few miles per hour at maximum. Wouldn't it be great to have a helicopter that can just whiz right over the plains and take gorgeous photographs of craters and the polar ice caps? Well, rovers cannot go to the polar ice caps. Rovers cannot go into many of the craters because they're simply too dangerous. Rovers can only go where it's boring, where we don't expect to find evidence of any life. And that's where the helicopter comes in. Second of all, rock retrieval. That's high on the agenda because we want to know what Martian soil is like. First of all, it's thought that we can melt and process Martian soil to create Martian brick. And instead of hauling cement from the Earth to Mars, we simply use the Martian terrain to create the bricks that will then in turn create an infrastructure of buildings on Mars. So we need to know what the rocks are like, and also we need to know the history of water on Mars, because, of course, microbial life may have flourished on Mars billions of years ago. In fact, there's one renegade theory uh, that says that Mars cooled off while the Earth was still molten. So maybe on the oceans of Mars back then, life got started. And meteors would then plow into Mars and send DNA into outer space, landing on the Earth. And here we are, folks. So that theory says that if you want to see a Martian, simply look in a mirror. Also, the probe has ground-penetrating radar. In other words, so far, we've only seen the boring parts of Mars. We've seen the very smooth plains where not many features are prominent because it's safe. We've never been to the polar ice caps. We've never been underground. We've never been in the, the, the canyons of Mars. But that's where a new generation of rovers may come in. There's a group called Boston Dynamics. You can Google it, Boston Dynamics. They're making robots that look like a horse or a dog. A dog that can roam across the, the ice caps of Mars, climb stairs, do all things that treads on a tractor cannot do. And so, in other words, in the future, we may be able to hop along the surface of Mars at a very good clip, really surveying the entire terrain of Mars, like the polar ice caps, and maybe find evidence of microbial life or some form of ancient Martian life. Also, we should point out, in all fairness, there's a traffic jam around Mars right now. The Chinese, the scientists at the United Arab Emirates, they too have sent probes to Mars. They went into orbit just two weeks ago. You see, every two years, there's a window of opportunity to send a probe to Mars. Earth, Mars are aligned just right, and so you have the least amount of fuel expended going from the Earth to Mars if you fire a missile once every two years. And so, roughly seven months ago, 
the Chinese, scientists at the United Arab Emirates, and NASA, of course, sent probes to the red planet. Seven months later, they are now approaching the red planet. So a round-trip mission for astronauts would take minimum two years. Seven months to reach the red planet, several months to do reconnaissance and scientific work, and then another seven months to come back. So every two years, that's when the window of opportunity opens up to send probes to the red planet. And in fact, around May or so, the exact time has not been fixed yet, the Chinese plan to release its version of a, of a lander and a rover on the surface of Mars. And so the UAE probe simply is orbiting around the red planet at the present time. The Chinese probe is also orbiting around Mars right now, but eventually will drop a rover onto the surface of Mars probably around May. So in other words, we have a traffic jam around Mars. And what does that mean? The cost of space travel is dropping. And that's initiating what is called the second era of space exploration. The first era was in the 1960s with the Apollo space program. And there was a vision then. The vision was beat the Russians. Well, we beat the Russians. And then there was no vision. And because rocketry costs so much money, the whole uh, manned space program collapsed. It costs $10,000 just to put a pound of anything into orbit. That's your weight in gold. Think of your body made out of solid gold. That's what it costs to put you into outer space. Now, everything has changed. First of all, we have Silicon Valley billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos opening up their own checkbooks, putting a new vision for the space program. The vision of Elon Musk is to create a multi-planet species. That is, we need an insurance policy for humanity because the dinosaurs did not have a space program. And that's why there are no dinosaurs here today to talk about it. Well, that's the vision of Elon Musk of SpaceX to create a multi-planet species. But what about Jeff Bezos, the other richest man in the world? His vision is to create the Earth as a celestial garden to put polluting heavy industry in outer space, to make the Earth a paradise, so that a lot of the polluting industries would be done in outer space. Well, we'll see what happens, but again, NASA has a timetable. In 2024 or so, NASA expects to send the SLS booster rocket with astronauts to the moon. The first woman will then walk on the surface of the moon soon afterwards. And then after that, a lunar orbiter will be created from which a Mars rocket will be built as it orbits around the moon. And then who knows, sometime after 2030, perhaps a mission to Mars will take place with astronauts on board. Or if Elon Musk has his way, he wants to simply bypass the moon entirely and go off to the red planet. Also news on the medical front. The disease of the century is actually Alzheimer's disease because, of course, the coronavirus will probably be brought under control in the coming year. At least that's the hope. But Alzheimer's is here forever. It's a disease of the century. Wouldn't it be great to have a simple biomarker to tell whether or not you have it or not? 
Right now, the only reliable way to determine whether or not you have Alzheimer's is to do an autopsy after you're dead. Some experimental tests are being developed now. One is to use MRI brain scans. Another is to analyze spinal fluid by putting a needle up your spinal cord. Another one is to use PET scans on the brain to look for the decay of radioactive materials inside your brain. These are largely experimental and very costly and awkward. What we need is a simple blood test, something that you can do in the privacy of your own home. Well, it's coming. Scientists have now identified a new enzyme, GFAP. GFAP could be it. It turns out that when the brain starts to show signs of Alzheimer's, GFAP is emitted from the brain into the bloodstream. And so a simple, a simple test allows you to tell whether or not you have Alzheimer's disease. So in other words, this could be a game changer. I mean, think about it for a moment. My mother, my mother died of Alzheimer's disease. And it's so sad looking into her eyes, realizing that she doesn't recognize me. She doesn't even recognize herself. All the years of suffering, all the years of trials and tribulations and tears, all of that forgotten. It is tragic that people work so hard to raise a family, to survive, and then have it all wasted away when your memory disappears. Well, wouldn't it be great if you had at least some advanced warning? Now, some people say, well, maybe I don't want to know. I mean, there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease right now. So what difference does it make? Well, personally, I think it makes a lot of difference. Because if you know you're going to get Alzheimer's disease, you can start to prepare. Because, of course, who's going to pick up the tab? Who's going to be taking care of you if it spins out of control? Your relatives. You're going to be a burden on your relatives. Wouldn't it be great if you can lay the groundwork now, financially, socially, to make the arrangements so that you don't simply dump it on your children or simply dump it onto your relatives? Wouldn't it be great if you had some advance warning? So my personal point of view, and again, everybody has to make up their own mind about this, and that is that it's better to know because you can prepare. And also think about this. By the time you're in your 80s, the fraction of the population which has Alzheimer's disease approaches 50%. I mean, think about that for a moment. This is not an abstract exercise in statistics. No, we're talking about the fact that by the time you hit 80, 50% of everybody you see around you, including yourself, may have their memory gone. And that's why I say it's better to know. Even if there's no cure, it's better to know so that you can prepare, you can ease the pain, you can make sure that your relatives simply don't have the problem dumped on them all of a sudden. You can make sure that the transition to an Alzheimer's regime is as painless as is medically possible. And that's why a simple blood test Perhaps a blood test that you can do in the privacy of your own home could be the wave of the future.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. In the second part of exploration, we're going to continue our ongoing discussion of the relationship between science and religion. We're going to bring on philosophy professor Daniel Dennett of Tufts University, author of the book Breaking the Chains, and he posits the idea that perhaps science, science will one day explain the origin of religion. What do you think? Well, in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Professor Daniel Dennett speaking about whether or not science can explain the rise of religion. Stay tuned. the second half of exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics. And in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about the ongoing series that we have about the relationship between science and religion. And if you want to know more about exploration and my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I've written four New York Times bestsellers. We have about Four million fans on Facebook, so find out about what I do by going to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. Well, as I mentioned in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Professor Daniel Dennett, Professor of Philosophy at Tufts University, because of our ongoing series about the relationship between science and religion. We know what Galileo thought when he was being persecuted by the Catholic Church so many centuries ago. Galileo said that the purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go. And the purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. So in other words, they are distinct but complementary. Science is about natural law, how the heavens go. While religion is about how to go to heaven that is, ethics. However, some people are saying that perhaps perhaps science will one day explain the rise of religion. Now, this does not mean that science will be able to answer ethical questions. Nowhere in science do we see that certain forms of behavior are ethically better than others. But on the other hand, maybe science can explain the rise of religion. Well, Professor Dennett has written a controversial book, Breaking the Chains, and so we'll talk about that. Is it possible that science can explain the rise of religion, not necessarily all the postulates and all the beliefs of religion, but the rise of religion itself? Well, what do you think? And I should also point out that I have a new book coming out on April 6th. That's right, I have a new book coming out with a title, the God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. And I talk about, well, what I do for a living. I work on Einstein's unified field theory. Einstein spent the last 30 years of his life chasing after the God Equation. An equation like E equals mc squared 
that would unify all the forces of the universe. An equation that would explain gravity, light, the electromagnetic force, the nuclear force, all of it into a simple equation, perhaps no more than one inch long. And it's a theory that has fascinated the world of science for thousands of years, ever since the Greeks began to ask the question, what is the universe made of? So in this book, I talk about the history, I talk about all the false leads, and I also talk about string theory, which is what I do for a living, which is at the present time untested, but the leading candidate for a theory of everything. One equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that will explain everything. Gravity, electromagnetism, the nuclear force, all the forces that make the universe go. All of it contained in my latest book, The God Equation. But now let's get back to Earth and bring on our special guest for today. Now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Dr. Daniel Dennett, Director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University. And he's the author of a very controversial book that people are talking about called Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. In other words, can science tease apart the origin of religion? Is religion itself a byproduct of Darwin's theory of evolution? Well, these are some of the questions we're going to ask Dr. Dennett as we talk about whether or not science can explain religion. In other words, can we break the spell? Religion as a natural phenomenon. As a youth now, can you tell me how you first got interested in science? Well, I got some books that had a wonderful for children, well, not for children, for young adults, a account of, of Einstein's theory of relativity, and I read that through and got fascinated with it. But actually, I, I didn't study science very, very much in school. I was a, I, in college, I was a philosophy major. I didn't really get into science until I was in graduate school when I decided I really wanted to understand how the human mind worked. And to do that, you had to know psychology, you had to know neuroscience, you had to know artificial intelligence. So I began to educate myself in those fields. Well, then, what was, it, what, was, what was it about philosophy as a youth that got you interested? Well, I think a lot of kids ask philosophical questions without thinking of it as philosophy. Just, why are we here? What's the nature of truth? What's the nature of reality? Uh, what's time? What's space? What's the cause? Uh, and I found myself um, asking those questions, and I think it was when I was a Oh, about 11 or 12 or 10, maybe, uh, off at summer camp. And a few of the counselors there suggested to me, oh, what you are is a philosopher, Dan. And I didn't even know what a philosopher was. So I thought, oh, okay, cool. You mean you can, you can actually do this for a living? Wouldn't that be great? Okay. And then what got you interested in cognitive science? Um, well, cognitive science is, uh, didn't even exist when I first got interested in it as a term. It's just the various 
science is the interdisciplinary field of the mind. And uh, uh, as I said, I was interested in what dreams were and optical illusions and visual illusions and hallucinations and uh, memory. And I thought about it just on my own as best I could, and I began to hunt around for uh, uh, books and experiments. And uh, But most of my serious work in cognitive science didn't start till I was in graduate school. Okay, now let's talk about religion and the substance of your book. Uh, first of all, anyone picking up a copy of your book might think to themselves, uh-oh, here's another liberal diatribe by an atheist denouncing religion and saying God does not exist. However, I guess that would be an unfair criticism of that, right? Well, that would be an unfair criticism, uh, not because I'm not a liberal and an atheist. I am both a liberal and an atheist. But that's not the point of my book. My point of the book is to say, look, I don't know whether religion is a good thing or not. It may be. But it's a thing. It's a phenomenon. It's a fantastic set of phenomena. They're beautifully designed to do what they do. Let's study them scientifically. We really need to because our understanding of these phenomena is going to be very crucial in the coming century as we deal with the world's problems. Let's look under the hood and see what makes them tick. Okay, now if you were a Martian coming down to analyze Homo sapiens and you realize that, well, gee, all Homo sapien tribes have a religion, there seems to be a deity or some kind of mystical uh, trappings to each of these philosophies, wouldn't you say, therefore, that, well, gee, maybe there's something genetic about all this? Well, uh, something has to explain it. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, Martian biologists would say... Uh, no, no, no such expenditure of energy and time and, and wealth uh, could possibly uh, persist if it wasn't if it wasn't paid for by by differential reproduction of one sort or another. So there's probably a genetic base, but of course it could also be that the that the practices themselves uh, reproduce uh, and jump from host to host, from person to person, and the the. The survival benefit is to them, not to the, not to their host. Okay, now let's talk about that specifically. Uh, the essence of evolution is that when different species acquire certain characteristics by mutations or what have you, uh, it helps their survivability. That's they right. then pass these characteristics on to their progeny. There's an advantage. Now, here's the key question, therefore. If societies do spontaneously uh, adopt religions, then if there is an evolutionary basis to this, as you claim, there is an advantage. There has to be some kind of selective advantage that religion gives them. What is that advantage? Well, there has to be a selective advantage that is given to something, not necessarily to them. You're right. Every, every human culture that's been studied, from small tribes to great nations, has, has religion. Every human culture already all, ever studied also has the common cold. Now, if we say, well, gee, I wonder what advantage the common cold provides to, uh, to people, the answer is it doesn't provide any. It survives because it can survive. The advantage is to it, to the, to the viruses and other pathogens that reproduce. And what we have to take seriously is the idea that religions survive because they can. Now, maybe they're really good for us. After all, in our bodies, in each of our bodies, there are not just thousands, not millions, not billions, but trillions of tiny organisms without which we could not live. 
They are essential to us. But it's their survival that that's how they evolve. They evolve, uh, uh, they have their own genetic fitness. And we have to look at the fitness of religious ideas on their own. Okay, now in your book, you take us back thousands and thousands of years when humanity existed in small tribes, almost like in wolf packs, and you then trace how religion could emerge from these very primitive societies because it performed some kind of service. So take us back now to the early days and trace the origin of religion. Okay, first of all, I want to remind you of, of, uh, of a feature that we share with, with most animals. Uh, um, you may have seen your dog suddenly jump up when, and growl when uh, some, some snow slid off the roof uh, and landed with a noisy thud outside the window, or some, start, some noise suddenly makes your dog jump up and growl. What's that dog doing? He's looking around to see, who's that? Who's that? Who's there? Who made that noise? He's jumping to the conclusion that there's an agent, a being that has beliefs and desires and intentions that maybe is out to get him. Now, that's a hair-trigger response, the, the agent's, detector or the agency detector, and it's, a, it's something that we have when we hear rustling in the bushes, we are uh, immediately alerted to this. Whenever anything novel and complicated and mysterious happens, one of our first thoughts, if not our very first thought, is who's there? Who's doing that? Why? And this, has, this obviously has a survival advantage. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a great way of staying alive if you've got a sort of predator detector. Of course, it may be a mate or it may be a rival. Uh, you want to find out. You want to orient to that thing and find out. So that's something that we share with animals. So what I suppose is that just as, as your dog might jump up, whenever puzzling things happened among our hominid ancestors, they were, they were saying, who's that, to themselves. But then their imaginations, because they had language, I'm supposing at this time, this were taking us back way into prehistory, but when language had been born, these ancestors of ours said, gosh, what was that? Did that tree talk? I think that tree talked. Oh, my God, a talking tree. Of course, they didn't say, oh, my God. They said, oh, my, a talking tree. And they did this all the time, maybe hundreds of times a day. They'd do the little startle. And most of these were sort of silly ideas, and they didn't catch on. But a few of them, were sort of more memorable, sort of unforgettable, and they would stick in people's heads, and they would think about them, and maybe they'd compare notes and say, hey, do you know about that talking tree? Oh, no, really, a talking tree? Who knows what the ideas were? But they re replicated in the minds of the people, and they began to have a common stock of unforgettable ideas of agents. These were not real agents. These were figments of their imagination. But we've just explained how that could get started. Now we've got competition in the brains of those ancestors. There's limited space. There's competition for rehearsal space in those minds. And some of them, the most unforgettable, the most vivid, the most, the most gratifying to think about, those are the ones that are going to stick around. So now we've got gods and demons and goblins uh, in, in great abundance as we see in the world's uh, folk religions today. And then gradually these get refined, and I could tell a very long story, but I tell it in the book, but I'll just shorten it down now and say a few of these ideas were particularly valuable or apparently valuable. For instance, one of the most 
uncomfortable feelings anybody can have is the sense of indecision. What do I do now? What should I do now? And sometimes we flip a coin, or sometimes we consult tea leaves, or sometimes we ask a friend, and sometimes we're just stumped. Well, the idea of asking one of these gods, what should I do? And then waiting until some kind of signal is given back could have been a great way to just get us off the dime and get us to do something. And sometimes when indecision is itself the enemy, when mainly what we have to do is figure out what to do and then all agree to do it together, having a God that can tell you what to do, even if the God is just complete chance, at least you're going to do something, you're all going to do the same thing. Now, animals, apparently, are not aware of their mortality. Humans, of course, can be obsessed by their mortality, and some people think that perhaps religion got started when we began to contemplate an afterlife. But what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's a lot to that. Um, uh, a, a corpse is something which is fearful and something that we find uh, repugnant, and, and we want to get away from it. At the same time, if it's the body of a loved one, we want to approach it. We don't want to go away. So we have a tremendous conflict. When, when somebody we love, somebody particularly in our family, dies, this creates turmoil for, for good biological reasons. And that somehow that turmoil has to be negotiated. Something has to be done. So this is a very powerful force to, to drive the creation of ritual as a, as a way of getting over this turmoil and responding to it. And part of what we have to deal with there is the habits of mind that we've formed. For years, we've been thinking, well, I wonder what she thinks about this, and would she like this or would she like that? Or does she know such and such? Oh, I hope she doesn't know that I just did that, and so forth and so on. We're always imagining, thinking about, wondering about what our loved ones are Thinking about, wanting, intending, doing. When somebody dies, that doesn't stop. We can't turn that habit off. Those, those habits of mind continue and fill our heads with the ghost of the person who just died. That's a sort of persistence of a habit of thought, which quite naturally turns into the conviction that, well, they're not really dead. They're still here. You can't see them anymore, but they're still here. They're with us. And we can still ask them, what should we do now? So it's not surprising that in, in just about every case that's been studied, the ancestors of the religion are ancestors, ancestor worship. Uh, it is no accident that God is called Father, or occasionally Mother, in just about every religion. Now, back in those days, people didn't live very long. Uh, today, of course, we can plan our retirement in Florida, but back then they didn't live long enough to die of heart disease and cancer and old age. Uh, the life expectancy was on the order of perhaps maybe 20 years, say some demographers. So death was constantly around them, including their own mortality. So you think that gave an impetus to to, for people to believe in religion, realizing that they could live forever, even though there's death all around them? Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's uh, a, a plausible factor. I think we, can, we could take that one and many others 
and put them all together uh, and then start sorting them out and seeing which ones which ones are really important and why and then we can start to dream up psychological research for instance that could test some of those hypotheses it seems for instance to be uh, particularly important that i mean there's a tradition that god is omniscient but it turns out that what people really behave as if they believe is that God is omniscient about things that matter morally or that matter strategically. Uh, it's not so much that, that, that um, um, God knows um, how many grains of sand are on the beach, but God knows if you do something wrong, or God knows uh, if you tell a lie, uh, or, or uh, where, the, where the, the stolen items uh, are. Uh, we, can, we can devise subtle experiments that can test out people's uh, really involuntary reactions to s- scenarios of this sort and see that uh, uh, a lot of the lore of religion that is uh, officially written in the, in the text is not actually officially followed. Now, then the key question is, what advantage does this confer onto a tribe? Let's say you have two tribes, one tribe that ignores religion totally, yep. And one tribe that gets into all this mysticism, reincarnation, God worship, pantheism, what have you, uh, why does the second tribe survive or have a better survival um, probability than the first tribe, which says, bah, humbug, there are no demons, there are no ghosts, there is no afterlife? Well, um, maybe it doesn't. That's, that's just one of the evolutionary possibilities. It may be that the, that the uh, ideas... Of the of the of the religious ideas, they survive just fine, but they don't do the tribe any good. That's always a possibility. Uh, it's probably more likely that the tribe that does have the uh, uh, religious ideas, the beliefs in the supernatural, is uh, given a greater sense of cohesiveness. Uh, they're a bit more forthright. They are, are more confident in battle. Uh, and there's a lot of warfare going on uh, between these tribes. Uh, they're more ruthless and more confident in battle, and that may be uh, the key to why why it helps them. Uh, whether it's still a good uh, adaptation uh, for for human groups is is an open question. Uh, our sweet tooth, after all, is 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 more of a problem than a benefit today. But it was certainly a it was certainly a good adaptation for us to have back in those days. Now, we also had uh, Dean Hamer, uh, Hammer from the National Institutes of Health on our radio waves. He talked about a God gene, uh, the fact that perhaps there is a gene in our genome that actually uh, uh, selects out those people who believe in God. And there is something called epileptic lesions, uh, that is uh, lesions to the brain that can actually be induced by a blow to the brain in which people see gods, demons, uh, and witches everywhere, that everything is caused by gods. If it rains, well, there was a rain god that did it. They, became, they become super-duper religious if they have epileptic lesions. Some people think may, maybe Joan of Arc uh, had epileptic lesions. But, well, what are your thoughts about something as, uh, um, something as nitty-gritty as a god gene? Well, I think that's putting it in a, in a sort of overly... Vivid and 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 crude way. Of course, sometimes you have to get an idea out there in sort of cartoon form first, and then look at the details. I think it's possible. First of all, of course, no matter what you think about, there's something in your brain that's lighting up uh, uh, just 
order to make it possible to think about that. So the fact that there would be parts of your brain lighting up when you're thinking about God or when, you, when you're having a religious experience is, is, should not be a surprise to anybody on any account. The question is, why would there be, if there is, uh, a specific uh, gene for making it more likely for people to have uh, religious experiences? And um, Hamer doesn't have much to say about this in his book, but I think uh, others have put forward some interesting research that could shed light on this. Um, uh, uh, McLennan, the, the uh, anthropologist, has pointed out that everywhere uh, in folk religions you have shamanic healing, you have witch doctors, you have shamans who go through elaborate ceremonies, and then often they have involving hallucinogens and, and drugs, local potions made of, of, of materials found in the area. And some of this really works. Uh, it works for some things. Uh, shamanic healing is, is not just hocus-pocus. And in particular, uh, it works for conditions where a placebo effect can be induced. Uh, and so the suggestion is that what shamanic healers were very good at finding, devising, were techniques which they passed on to their, to their successors for inducing a sort of hypnotic analgesia, a sort of hypnosis, which had a placebo effect, which helped relieve the pain of childbirth, for instance, and could cure uh, some ills. Now, if that's true, then the fact that some people are more or less immune to hypnosis, they just aren't hypnotizable, other people are very hypnotizable. Now, if there's a genetic difference between those people, and there may well be, and that may be what Dean Hamer has, has discovered, then, of course, having the gene for susceptibility to hypnosis would be, in effect, having health insurance. <laughs> uh, back in those days, there were no doctors, there were no hospitals. If you needed relief, your only hope was the shaman. And if you had a genetic difference from your neighbor, which meant that shamans were more effective with you than they were with your neighbor, this could be a tremendous fitness boost for you. Okay, I picked up a copy of Time Magazine a few years ago, where on the cover they talked about uh, science and religion. And inside it mentioned that if you take a electromagnetic transmitter and put it right next to a certain part of the brain to excite a very specific region of the brain, people become very religious. Uh, they think they're in the presence of an omniscient being. They become awestruck uh, by this presence. And uh, this is not a healing thing. This is not going to make you, uh, you know, cure cancer or anything. But there seems to be a part of the brain which responds, uh, a part of the brain which has evolved, and the question is, why would this part of the brain evolve unless there was some, like I said, advantage to feeling that you're in the presence of a deity? Um, well, it could evolve for any number of, of reasons. Um, uh, if you show people certain visual effects, they see uh, amazing illusions. Uh, why did that evolve? It evolved as a byproduct of a good working visual system. No, no uh, organ system is perfect. It is always the scope in which it works well, and then there are the conditions under which it works pathologically. And uh, if, if those conditions are rare enough, 
or if the pathology is not too deleterious, then that can be a good bargain. The best, the best of all possible worlds is a, a vision system which almost never gives you hallucinations or illusions, but of course sometimes it does. Why do we see a stick in the water as bent? Well, because it's just too expensive to make a vision system that can somehow correct for Snell's law of refraction. However, there are fish and birds that do have vision systems that can correct for, for the refraction of water. So it's not impossible. So the, the fact that if it is, and I'm, I'm not quite so sure that the, the transcranial magnetic stimulation works quite as, as uh, crisply as you suggest, but let's suppose for the sake of argument that it does, uh, why should there be uh, a spot which uh, induces uh, uh, some sort of religious conviction to occur? Well, that's a very good question, and it may not be because it's good to have that belief. It may be that it's good to have the beliefs that uh, the system delivers, and this is the system in a pathological state.